Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hank, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Osama Himani, CIO of the firm. In stark contrast to much of the rest of the world, China's economy has recovered remarkably well from COVID-19. Driven by a public and household sector debt field surge in spending, the country is actually on track to end 2020 with positive economic growth. But is this growth sustainable? To answer this question and to discuss opportunities for investors, our guest this week is Alicia Garcia Herrero. She is the Chief Economist for Asia-Pacific at Natixis and serves as Senior Fellow at European Think Tank Bruegel. She's currently adjunct professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and among many other roles is advisor to the Hong Kong Monetary Authority's research arm and the Asian Development Bank. With that, I'll hand over to Osama. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Alicia. You know, I very much enjoy your research and, and your commentary on, on China and Asia is, is you know, in general, is, is always a, a treat to read. <laughs> China received an increased level of attention this year. This is in part because of the speed with which the economy's recovering from the COVID crisis has really exceeded ex- many expectations. But the attention is also due to external factors. I think the prospect that that developed market interest rates are likely to remain at zero for some time as has increased uh, interest in the Chinese bond market. Now, in the past, the Chinese bond market, you know, you could you could think of Chinese bonds as having fallen between two stools, right? The yields tend to be too low, credit quality in general too high to have this sort of meaningful attraction for the typical emerging market bond investors. But it is too much of an emerging market, has too many emerging market characteristics to, to really attract very large allocations from, from uh, you know, the, the many developed market bond investors. This is clearly changing as China's market becomes more open to foreign investors. So the first question that comes to, to mind of everyone thinking of allocating to the Chinese bond market is, is the sheer level of debt in the economy. China has a much higher level of debt as a share of GDP than countries at similar levels of economic development. The COVID crisis triggered the worsening of the ratios. Um, borrowing increased, GDP deteriorated. How much of a concern should this be? Well, it's a great question. Um, I've been looking into China's debt for years and it does nothing but increase. And of course, um, you know, every time you see that in whatever economy you you worry. But I have to say that China's debt is slightly different from uh, the usual suspects. If you think about Brazil, which is actually lower overall, but public debt is higher, yeah? It'll probably reach 100% of GDP for Brazil and and China will be well below. I mean, our estimate is that it might reach 100% in 2025, meaning not yet. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing is that uh, China's debt is domestic. Uh, Brazil's debt is to to a large extent external or at least non-residents buying local denominated debt. In the case of China, it's residents buying local denominated debt, except for 3% of total, which is the flows you are referring to. Meaning foreign investors, and by the way, that percentage was, when I started following this thing, 1%. It's tripled, but it's still very low. I mean, nobody's going to you know, be pushed, put it this way, by foreign investors pulling out, uh, which is not the case of Brazil. So it is very different to have high savings. That's what I'm trying to say, which allow you to support any level of debt. Now, 
death though, although it may be sustainable, which is what I'm trying to say, because it's domestic, because frankly speaking, China's nominal GDP still grows decently. Yeah, it's not mm -hmm. the developed world. You have some inflation is of course low, but you have some. And then also, even if GDP growth this year is 2%, it's 2%, you know, it's not zero or negative. Yeah, yeah. So of course, that sustainability is easier. Of course, interest rates are not as low. So we have 3.2 Shibor at the moment. So, you know, cost of funding is slightly higher than the rest of the world. But if push comes to shove, China can push down interest rates. I mean, there's nothing yeah. that prevents China from doing that. So for me, sustainability of China's debt is not an issue. They, it, so I would not be worried as a foreign investor. And let mm -hmm. me tell you, Osama, that what foreign investors buy in China to the tune of 70% of that figure I gave you, that 3%, 70 to 80% is only public mm, debt, I hope so government debt, not local government, central government, and policy banks. So the best yeah. of the best, the yeah. jewelry of the crown, they don't buy, uh, you know, credit of any sort. I mean, just a few head funds, but that's not what people generally buy, which I'm not saying is not what China wants us to buy. That's a different thing, yeah? Right. I mean, I'm sure they would prefer investors to buy, you know, riskier assets and, and in a way to help uh, lower the funding costs and so, but the reality is that that's not the case yet. So would I ever doubt that the central China central government is not going to pay any interest? Frankly, no. So I think that it is a free, it's a free, you know, it's, it's a nice, uh, I wouldn't say risk-free because that's a big word, but as risk-free yeah. as anybody else, as the US or, you know, any European government, if not any better. So. I do think those deals are quite appealing. If you, if you even add the fact that the renminbi has been appreciating quite strongly, I mean, investors out there have made a nice five percent out of China, and should China pay five percent? I mean, uh, including the exchange rate appreciation, that's a different topic. I don't think China will continue to pay that amount for very long, to be frank. We can talk yes. about how it may evolve, but I think that's an important issue here. Am I worried? No, In, for the, from the investor's point of view. And now you may say, wow, Alicia, you look like, you know, basically, I don't know, Citic Security is selling. Let me go to the second part of the question. <laughs> Am I worried about what this amount of debt may do to the Chinese economy? Yes, because what I'm trying to say here is that that in a way, channels a lower return on assets because you know where is this all of this debt going maybe to unproductive pro, pro projects etc that's in a way long term and this is long term and by the way china generally issues very short-term debt so you know it's not necessarily a big issue for investors but long term i worry about much lower growth in china <laughs> because all of this debt is going to to a large extent to not very productive projects because it's kind of rushing into the system to, to keep on growing. So that's, but that's not such an issue for investors. It's an issue for China. Should I pay such a high rate for projects that may have a return on assets on average for China 1.5 and paying double of what I can get 
So, so that um, is, a, is a good lead into the discussion on growth. Growth trajectory and the, China's growth trajectory is sort of constantly under debate by economists and, and investors. So many argue that China's growth is only sustained by its increasing debt and that ultimately the burden of this debt will be too much for, uh, yeah, for the growth to be sustained. Others argue that China has the potential to sustain another period of high growth if there is significant reform to its uh, state-owned enterprises. So what's your take on this and, and what do you anticipate China's growth prospects to be uh, going forward? Great question, Paul, also because I can tag in uh, our new report, not yet published, but in the making on China's long-term growth, how we see issues there. And we actually have estimated, uh, based on very standard uh, assumptions on the uh, slowing down of labor productivity in China, uh, et cetera. I mean, something of the order of 3.7 for the next 10 years, something like that. Um, remember that we were at 6.1 last year, so it's not minor. And then from 2035 onwards, uh, it's rather of the other 2.4. Um, so China will look much more like, say, South Korea in, in 2035, with a population actually falling, labor, uh, labor supply falling around, around a percentage. Now it's half a percentage. So that's bringing down growth. But the most important factor is not aging. It's labor productivity, productivity in general. So of course the key question is, will innovation make, you know, basically radically change this scenario? And the only thing I can say is that based on the past, of course, I don't know about the future, but based on the past, no, because China has been innovating, doubling, actually tripling its R&D and improving massively its human capital. And we've not yet seen any increase in total factor productivity. And I think the answer is exactly what you mentioned, is that you can be very innovative and that's great, but in order to be innovative enough for 1.3 billion people, you know, you, you really need to innovate a lot because the, the degree of diffusion that, that needs every single person to become more productive, you see, is just very hard. Instead, if you reform, if you liberalize and, and reform, and we have a nice graph in that publication, in coming publication of the increase in labor productivity in China. Don't think that labor productivity in China has always come down. No, it was low and it came up and it, then it went down and it came up again. And for every single episode of reform and opening up, you had a massive increase in productivity. So from SOE reform in, in the late 80s to then WTO uh, entrance, all of that actually uh, brought huge increases in productivity. So we would need one more go. You know, innovation is great, but I don't think China can grow much faster than the numbers I gave you without reform. And of course, the key question is, will reform come? I think opening up is in the making somehow. I mean, at least the financial sector is more open. Maybe not every sector, frankly, but we'll see a little bit of that. For SOE reform, I'm, I can't be adamant because you know I'm not the, I'm not I'm not a policymaker in China, let alone one of the most powerful ones, obviously. But I don't see it. I just can't sense a change in economic model in China 
anytime since I can't grasp it. It is simply not there. It, there is a, a kind of this recognition that this uh, state-led um, or socialism with China's characteristics, you can call it as you like, serves a purpose. And it does serve a purpose because this time around, if you, if you see the growth, that 2%, it's basically thanks to the public sector. So, you know, I can understand that it does help in, in bad times that, that in a way acts as a stabilizer. I mean, you name it, there are positives on the, in the model, but it isn't growth, it isn't productivity. So you can't have it all. That's all. And that's why we have those, those forecasts for growth in China, which might look unappealing, but that's what we think. Yeah. So in, in a way, I mean, that's very interesting what you're saying about reform and, and, and SOE reform. I mean, you know, to my mind, there's a bit of a dissonance, right? That, that, that is that the Made in China 2025 campaign, which, which is clearly one that envisages an active role by the government, whether through SOEs or whatever, um, uh, uh, in, in, in achieving the, you know, certain targets. At the same time, you know, there is this, the, the other more recently announced objective, which is to be a moderately developed country by 2035, um, which is a much harder target to achieve without significant reforms. Um, and, and, and importantly, reducing the crowding out of the private sector. Uh, through through the financial system and and whatever, so so if if I understand you correctly, it's really very hard to achieve these reconcile these two objectives, and therefore maybe the twenty thirty five objective is very hard to achieve. Read yeah. you correctly. So I think that okay, first of all, that uh, objective is not clearly defined. As it's actually less clearly defined than the previous objective, which we just quote unquote, achieved in 2020, the great rejuvenation, because uh, for the great rejuvenation, we knew that it would have to be doubling China's income, but it wasn't clear whether it was income per capita, it wasn't, but more or less, you know, we we didn't fully reach it because of 2020 horrible 2% growth, we needed six, but basically, you know, let's, let's, let's tick it, it's done. Now we need to double it again. Actually, in the fifth plenum, uh, nobody actually says double it. Then actually Xi Jinping clarifies it's doubling it. But what exactly? Let me clarify. It could be doubling, so from 10,000 to 20,000. But that doesn't mean converting, meaning it doesn't mean that you take into account where people will be when you are at 20,000. You see what I mean? Like maybe yeah. those who were at 20,000 will be at 25. Are you converging? It isn't clear. If it's not converging, frankly speaking, I think it's doable. Why? Because you need to focus on nominal growth, not real. I mean, I just need to double yeah, from 10 to 20. So you can have a stronger currency. You know, you can play around the fact that it's in renminbi versus dollar. You know, you, there's many, many ways to uh, nominal GDP could grow 4.7%, which is basically what you need, plus a little bit of exchange rate appreciation. If you grow maybe, what, 3.5 real, you're done. Yeah. Even three, maybe. So I think you can reach that. The problem is moving from 20 onwards. Because that's when you, you know, I think you are basically stuck. Is, is it a bad thing to be 1.3 billion people and be stuck at 20? Not really. I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm not in the camp of 
failure. I'm just in the camp of uh, decreasing returns of, you know, returns of uh, decreasing returns and China becoming a normal uh, economy in that regard of, you know, being increasingly difficult to grow and in being increasingly difficult to have a bigger disposable income to spend. That's what, and, and having very large corporations, which is good, but heavy, low return on assets. Yes. You know, that kind of thing. And frankly, this is not too different from South Korea. Again, South Korea, if you look at what happened with the shipping industry, with it was it's it's a very innovative economy, but it has like this kind of dinosaurs out there, you know. And I think I can imagine China becoming and again, South Korea is of course a success. It's just that, of course, there's also an issue about the role of the state, much bigger in China. So so it can be a South Korea plus, 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 meaning many more of those dinosaurs that we actually have in South Korea, to be frank. But, but I don't want to take anything away from China because that's not, I mean, I want to be fair that, that I think they can easily reach that 20,000. And I think it can be a good ride for investors. If you ask me, especially if you focus on, you know, on uh, safe assets or close to safe assets i don't see any, any or or, or equities or equities, right, equities yeah. we could talk about the sectors that might be more appealing uh, you know long term you are investing in a currency i mean now it's very strong but generally that if china you know grows at that rate it should be more expensive over time this is a convergence play so i'm not uh, in the camp of never touch china it's so risky whatsoever but that doesn't mean I don't see the end of this high growth story, because that's a different topic. If you can't think of multiples of, you know, I don't know, there's crazy multiples out there for China, I have to say, in some sectors. That's where I see a little bit of a limit. But other stories, especially on, you know, household, household consumption, I think there's a lot of gains to be made. So yeah. as, as, as the economy converges, of course, there's a rebalancing and the consumer yes, sector absolutely. is one that, 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 that sees a lot of much higher growth than the rest of the economy. Yeah. You, you, one of the things you mentioned in your, in, in, in your remarks now is you know, how, to, how to interpret these targets and whether it's in dollars and renminbi and the appreciation of the currency, which you mentioned a couple of times. So, so maybe let's, let's talk a bit about the currency and monetary policy. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the attractive features about, about uh, uh, the Chinese bond market is that it offers genuine diversification because the monetary policy cycle is not perfectly synchronized with the US and, and, and yeah. Europe. You know, it's very rare for a country to, well, can't really maintain monetary policy independence while managing the exchange rate very closely, right? It's, uh, you know, the dilemma you have is that you will need capital controls. And, and so China has this independence because it has, there are capital controls, but, but China also wants to increase international, internationalization of the currency. Yeah. Right now, you know, there's this international liquidity in renminbi that is separate from the domestic one. And, but if, if, if the renminbi is to play a bigger role in the international monetary system, and that seems to be something they they want as a goal, then they need to reduce capital controls over time, which, which will mean less monetary policy autonomy or a much more flexible exchange rate. 
you know, what is what is the timeline that you think? I mean, at, at what point should, you know, right now, you know, there was some variability, but but two, three percent, three percent, four percent appreciation is is you know variability can be much higher uh, under the would have been much higher under the circumstances we saw this year. So so what do you what do you expect for investors? You know, at what stage should we start thinking in terms of a much more variable currency? You know, frankly speaking, I see now this uh, renewed interest in. China's opening up in terms of capital account convertibility. Then people are very bullish on this because they see the inflows. There were a few announcements last week on outflows, which are interesting, by the way. Uh, the partial lifting of the QDII, which for uh, listeners is um, basically the way for Chinese investors to, to invest abroad is like a quota and uh, they want to make it larger. They also want to introduce a southbound uh, angle into the bond connect, which means that because now the, the equity, the, the stock connect Hong Kong, uh, stock connect Hong Kong, Shanghai or Shenzhen is both ways. Mm -hmm. But the bond connect is only northbound, meaning inflows. But now they're going to allow for outflows, which is very important for Hong Kong and generally for anybody issuing in Hong Kong, because you know this, there will be a huge demand for dollar assets issued in Hong Kong. But what I'm trying to say is they're trying to open a little bit the outflow. So everybody's very bullish. Wow, you know, uh, will they let the currency go or will they uh, lose some monetary independence? My take on this is that they do not want to lose any of, of, I mean, they want to have it all. And the trick and whether this might be true, you know, it's like, uh, as any innovation, I don't have the right answer, but the trick that they seem to be buying into is that with the digital currency, you can do it. You have blockchain technology, you have a centralized ledger, you can check everybody around. And the minute you think it's too much, you just close the door or you know, you selectively, you see what I mean? Like they have this idea. I mean, when I talk to Chinese uh, policymakers, I'm kind of, wow, you know, the, the as you know the the uh, impossible trinity which we learned as you said since we started studying economics will disappear thanks to the digital currency i don't know but this is the now the point is not so much whether they will manage or not is what they have in mind and what they have in mind is to never lose control of monetary policy or the exchange rate if you ask me maybe maybe more than we have we have so far, but never fully. I don't think they have a fully open capital account in mind. I think they actually think that's a problem that the West faces that they shouldn't get into. They, have, they are very strong-minded on this point, uh, but they want to have an international currency. So in a way, the, the, the uh, irony of things is that you could have it all again. You could have an international currency. You know who is holding it. You control your capital account. You have monetary policy independence, and you kind of manage your exchange rate. And when you argue that others don't do that, they tell you, "Excuse me, the Fed is weakening the currency." You know, like like they argue, maybe rightly, that we do the same. So, just with different with different schemes, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we use QE. They they just think of a digital currency. We all have our ways to 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 do this, but. In a, in a natural, my answer is, 
I don't think they are even imagining that they could not control the interest rates because, by the way, on top of that, they don't think the Fed will ever have that power forever. I mean, they, meaning that there will be a rebalancing of powers among central banks and that they will not follow the Fed no matter what. They're very, very strong-minded about this, you know, the demise of the dollar, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so no, uh, if, if you want to hold renminbi for diversification in terms of cycle and interest rate, uh, um, I mean, lack of correlation in, in interest rate levels, to me, that's the best currency you can hold because indeed, that's the ultimate objective. Interesting. So, and so, so, so we should be expecting that that you know this this correlation will be will 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 remain for some time, and then the exchange rate may may yeah capital controls, as you say, may not be uh, um, yeah. removed completely. On the exchange rate, because this is quite important for for your clients, I think. Not that I think the renminbi will continue to appreciate forever. If you ask me why they're opening to outflows now, QDII, Southbound, uh, Bond Connect, exactly to 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 limit to upward the pressure, pressure on the currency. I don't think they want to let the renminbi reach six. If you ask me, some people have those numbers out there. I I I don't think that's that's what they have in mind. No. There is a big constituency in China for around the exchange rate. In, in both directions, I guess, right? Yeah, because yeah. because you know some SOEs uh, would would and and local governments would prefer, you know, a, a, a stronger currency. Others not so strong a currency, depending on on the business models that they have, yes. and, and that's all pretty the, integrated. The distributional com, uh, consequences of very strong swings in the renminbi are huge. So that's why the central government, in my opinion is not keen on major swifts. And you see that they lifted the counter-cyclical factor recently to avoid a very strong appreciation. They still didn't get it. They just stopped it for a while. They will come with something else. They just don't like one way, you know, whether it's depreciation or appreciation. So, and again, the reason is exactly what you said, that the, the, the constituencies are strong and the distributional effects are big. And they just don't want to deal with that. So recently, we've seen a, a landmark change in, in the Chinese onshore bond market with a few high-profile defaults by some of you know the state-owned enterprises. So this, of course, breaks the long-held assumption by investors um, the, of this implicit government guarantee for these bonds. So regarding these defaults, can we make any assumptions about central government policy going forwards, or is this just entirely a local government issue? Uh, well, some are central government. You had uh, Beijing, uh, you, you had Tsinghua on the semiconductor space. You have had a couple of uh, central SASAC. Uh, so I think the whole, and, and in sectors that you could consider to be very strategic, like semiconductors, of course. So I think the message they want to offer is I mean, we're not here to increase moral hazard, you know? It's like if something is going wrong, and by the way, if you look at the history behind these defaults, we had now Brilliance, this auto, automobile uh, producer uh, related to BMW, they're now uh, investigating, um, whether it's the CEO, I can't remember exactly, but it might be the CEO. But point is, 
there's always like an obscure, if I may say, reason behind, or so it or so it appears, which in a way, I mean, and when you hear the PBOC's comments, uh, Yigan's, uh, Governor Yigan's comments, is really about moral hazard, reducing systemic risk, going after the even the underwriters behind. So it's like, don't misbehave, please. Yeah. yeah. If you are an SOE and you misbehave, I go after you as if you were a private company. So, so it's it's not like a leveraged story or cyclical story of defaults. It's more about do not misbehave, and it's very important because you know, frankly speaking, how can I know they misbehave? You know, this is why my call for foreign investors interested in China is to keep it very simple. Even if the return is lower, just keep it at the highest level, you know, possible. Uh, big financial institutions, policy banks, um, and central government, because that's where you can't get it wrong. Because the rest is too complex for me. If, I mean, we have all kinds of reports. Uh, corporate. I just, we just finished one on corporate financial health. I look at all of that and I said, "How on earth can I know who's going to default next?" I can't. So, so that's an yeah. important message, I think, for investors. So, I mean, a difficulty of access, you know, little differentiation and a lack of focus on fundamentals has often been used as a, a reason for international investors to shy away from the onshore uh, bond market. Do you think that the recent change in the way that more companies are being allowed to default and um, potentially have their risks priced freely by a more open market uh, would lead to, in general, a stronger onshore bond market over the longer term and, and moving forward? I actually think that the onshore market will be stronger in the sense that there will be more foreign investors for a very simple reason. Nobody offers that that yield. I mean, frankly speaking, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, it, but it's not about the risk being tamed. I just don't understand the risk, no matter how much I look at them. It's just that it's kind of very uh, appealing to me, you know, like, like for the reasons I mentioned, I don't think that the defaults we're seeing are bringing more transparency, if you ask me. Sorry, I don't buy that story. I mean, I, I want to be very frank. Uh, I don't know why they default. I don't know why that coal company rather than another coal company, no matter how long I look at these names. So, so my take for investors is, you're not going to know. You're not going to know. Uh, and thus, <laughs> thus, focus on the very best. Even, and if you really want to risk it, frankly speaking, go to the offshore market, buy some uh, developers' names, you know, high yield, dollar. Mm, mm, they've done quite well, to be frank. Um, it, it, you have less of a reputational, all, all kinds of, you know, onshore type risk. Just go for that. But the mixture of uh, local SOE, lo local government financial vehicle, all of that in the onshore market, oh my God. I mean, the, still, the rate of reforms is very low. It's lower than Europe, slightly lower than Europe. Of course, much lower on the high yield space than uh, US. So it's still, we're talking about a limited risk. The point is, in the US, I know why this company or the other. I, I mean, I, I can make... A, an estimate of where they are. In China, it's very, very difficult. So I think that's the key issue. 
that the I can't disentangle. I really can't. And I think and many people, you need a lot of quote unquote private information to do that. And I'm a foreign investor. I'm not going to be the first to know that. That that's basically my argument. It's very simple. That's a very interesting thought because it's not, yeah, and 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 in your it's not only as a foreign investor, it's very hard to know who might, you know, look at the probability of default, but it's also, and we don't have much experience in the market, even the Chinese themselves don't have much experience with how how defaults are really resolved. I mean, the 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 uh, you know, if I'm to think of say one famous SOE defaulting back in 2016, uh, uh, Dongbei Steel, that at that point, you know, the, the local government's equity stake was completely wiped out. Now we're not really talking about a scenario where the local government's equity stake would be wiped out. So, so maybe the haircut on, on bondholders would be higher. We don't know yeah. how it would be resolved. And, and these are policy questions. Well. Thank you very much, Alicia, with your thoughts. I, I really, it's always a pleasure to listen to you. And, and yeah, and I, I'm an avid reader of your research. I, I hope uh, all listeners to this podcast will, will do the same. It's uh, always looking forward when, when getting one of your emails. Thank you so much. You are very kind and uh, anything you need. I hope your investors find it interesting and they look into China. I'm not there to particularly, as I said, sell or do not sell China. I just think it's a market you can't avoid. As simple as that, uh, both on the equity or fixed income space, increasingly so. So I think your interest in navigating these difficult waters should be most welcomed by your, uh, by your clients. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.